in Europe, of course, a lot of European countries, uh, France in particular, leading the way in atheism. But in America, you've still got a very low number. As belief in the Bible slides, you may say the belief in God is starting to slip. The belief in the Bible is, in many ways, at least if you look over the last 80 years, is plummeting. But, but not the belief in life after death. Um, there's a lot of folks now, up to 22%, who would say, I don't believe the Bible is an accurate book. They might say it as firmly as, I think it's full of fables and myths. So that number is growing. If you look at that, that's a pretty big number. And only 78% would say something like, well, I, I trust the Bible as a reliable source of history or what have you. Um, so doubt in the Bible is, is definitely up, or de definitely down. But belief in the afterlife is actually moving up. The trajectory is slow because it's such a high number. But today, more people would say, in America at least, I'm speaking American stats now, would, more people today would see they believe in the afterlife today than they did 30 years ago. And yet, the belief in the Bible in the last 30 years has gone down uh, a, a, at a good clip. So that presents us with a particular challenge. And yet, when you talk to someone, if it's your waiter or someone you're waiting you know, with at the tire store or whatever, and, and you talk about the afterlife, most people are already there. They believe there's something beyond the grave. And I think that's an important place for us to begin, is to think that through. The reason for that, biblically, is that we have an imprint of immortality. An imprint of immortality. And I just thought it would be good to take a quick second to step back and say, well, what do we even mean by that word? Uh, immortality. We talk about mortals, mere mortals. The word as it's translated and used in our English Bibles can sometimes refer to the word immortality as an exclusive attribute of God. First Timothy chapter 6 verse 15 and 16, verses 15 and 16 says, he who is blessed and the only sovereign, king of kings and lord of lords, who alone has immortality. He dwells in unapproachable light. That picture of God being the only one who is immortal it's like a lot of words we use in a technical sense with a very specific reference to God and his attributes. Like we might say God is holy and you might look at a person and even the Bible might call someone like Daniel or Samuel or Moses a holy person. Even all the Christians are called holy. We're called saints. That's what it means. We're holy ones. Um, we don't mean that in an absolute sense. So when you speak in terms of an absolute sense, which is very easy to define as I'm about to help you think it through, we need to recognize that God has a corner on what we mean by an absolute sense of immortality. But in a relative sense of immortality, which seems like there wouldn't be a relative in an absolute sense, we'll try and put that in a simple sentence here in a second, we realize that Christ came to give us immortality. It says, Christ who abolished death and brought to life, I'm sorry, he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So there's something about the word immortality that we get to share in because of Christ and the gospel, assuming, of course, that we respond, respond rightly to it. And we're thinking about, in particular, what 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 53 is talking about, and that is that we know mortality as we describe it in terms of human beings is that we are temporal beings. We are temporal in the sense that we have a beginning, and in our human biology, we have an end. And the point of the resurrection is to take the perishable and put on an imperishable body, and as it says in the middle of this verse, to have the mortal body take on immortality. So there's a couple different senses to this. Three, really, if you think about it. There's the immortality of God, who was always, who is, of course, now, 
and is to come forever. He was, he is, he is to come. That's the ultimate definition of immortality. Now, there's a sense of mortality when you look at biology and that someone was born on a particular day. You walk through the cemetery, they'll have a date on there when they were born and you have a date on there when they have died. There's mortality. There's a mortal being. He wasn't before he was born and now he's died. And so we say, well, there's, there's a little tiny space of time this person was. But we go, well, wait a minute. We know that's not the case because though we have no definitions in Scripture for existing before we're born, we have all this discussion about life after death, and we recognize that there's an ongoing consciousness and reality after this life. So we would say, okay, so everyone is going to live after they die. But the question is, how are they going to live? Are they going to live in concert with God and his blessings or alienated from God and all that he can grant us in terms of blessing and good and joy and pleasure? And if we're excluded from that, we're said to be dead again. Second death, it's called in Scripture. You're cast from the presence of God. You have this eternal problem. But if you're saved, well, then you live forever. Even though you die, yet shall you live. That's the picture that Christ paints for us in Lazarus's, uh, at Lazarus's scene there in, in John 11. So the idea is God is the only one who's immortal. Human beings in their temporal bodies in this particular epoch of time have a beginning and an end, but we really don't mean they have an end. They have an ongoing reality, but what we want is we want immortality to be brought to light to be with God after they die, and that would be a great thing. Well, we need the body then to be resurrected. We need that mortal body, that perishable body, to become imperishable and immortal, and so in that sense, we talk about immortality. So when I talk about the imprint of Im immortality, what I'm talking about is we are thinking in these terms that there's something beyond this life for us. There is some existence beyond this life. Who we are goes beyond what we experience between those two dates on the headstone. And Genesis 1 verse 27 helps us in this regard because we know unlike other things like creatures that may have some kind of existence, maybe not the reflexive nature that we have, maybe even not the kind of sentient realities that we experience, but we know there are creatures and animals and all kinds of beasts of the field and fish of the sea, and they're like us in the sense they share the same definitional biology in many regards, but God has created us unique. There's a unique special group of people called human beings that were made in the image of God. He creates them, male and female, the same in the sense that they both reflect the image of God. Well, God is the God who is immortal. He possesses immortality. He creates beings now, pulls them out of the dust of the earth, breathes into them the breath of life, and there's something about the nature of those individuals now that are encased in humanity, enmeshed in, I'm sorry, encased in, in a body, in a physical container, and, and they're enmeshed in that container. They have, in, just in the sense of who they are, a sense of immortality. They know there's something beyond this life. They intuitively recognize that. Not to mention they were designed to experience that. Genesis chapter 3, that's the bottom of the curse. Remember, they were caught. Of course, they were going to be caught all in the open view of God, disobeying God's command. And so God then is going to punish them. And you know, as he goes through that list of things, the very last thing, and we don't often read it as carefully as we read the other things like pain and childbirth and sweat of your brow and to the dust you shall return. Well, the next thing that it describes in that passage is guarding the tree of life. 
So the cherubim are posted there so they can't eat the tree of life. Why? Lest he reach out his hand, speaking of Adam here, and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Well, living forever is kind of the second tier definition of immortality. And we know God had made individuals, at least on paper, the intention is for them to live forever. And in that sense, they're immortal. And they have a reality in their own design of being immortal. And they, that's the way, that's the way they, they think. That's the way they feel. That's, that feels right to them to live forever. As Ecclesiastes 3.11, and it is a notoriously difficult bit of grammar, but I think most people come to the conclusion, even though the context seems a little baffling, that little middle phrase there in verse number 11 means what it seems to mean, and that is that God has put eternity into the hearts of men. He has put eternity into man's heart. So there's a sense in which I have this, this nagging reality in my own thinking that I should be not dying, that I should live on. And all you have to do is think about your own mortality, and you think, wow, that doesn't seem right. And that's why, and I often say it, uh, sometimes they say it at funerals, that when your, when your grandmother dies and she's 90 years old, uh, we, we might say it, but we don't mean it, that, well, she had a good life, right? I mean, like she lived a good life. Well, if, if you were in Methuselah's family before the flood, you'd feel really bad for a 90-year-old that dies, Right? Be like, wow, that's a bummer. That'd be like a 10-year-old dying here, and we grieve a 10-year-old not the way we grieve a 90-year-old. Well, that's all relative, of course. The world changed, as we know, as I've tried to posit at least, and we have a whole different world, and it's more hostile toward biological life, and so we die a lot earlier, precipitously, on an actual equation that you can, you can spell out if you're the mathematician, and guys have done it, to show how after the flood we see this precipitous fall in the lifespan of individuals. So, we know how long you live is a relative thing. And we would say to our grandmother, if you love your grandmother, you're still going to cry. The only reason you would say, well, she lived a good life and it's good that Ethel's gone is because you're concerned about her pain. You're concerned about the fact that she's not who she used to be. Uh, But see, if all of that is not an issue, you want grandma to live, if you love her, as long as possible. Just like you when you're 90, if you are functional, if you are able to do what you can do, you'll be like, well, of course I want to keep going. I want my relationships to last. Death is that, that intrusion. And all I'm trying to say is, biblically, the rationale is everyone is made in the image of God. Everyone carries around a sense of immortality. So that's why we can deny our origins in an evolutionary story. We can deny a lot of spiritual realities because we feel like all you can see in terms of reality, all that is in terms of reality is what I can see, taste, touch, and smell, and and hear. Uh, you can even believe there's no God. But all of those are going to be less on the, on the stats than people saying, well, I think there's life after death because there's something about the ontology of who human beings are that say, I think I should be living on. I don't think I should be dying. I don't think I should cease to exist. 